This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. Two stories on this episode. First, the crisis at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. Unprecedented, completely preventable, and extremely dangerous. We're hanging by a thread here. Joe Cerincioni is a nuclear proliferation expert. No nation has ever invaded, attacked, occupied the civilian nuclear power facility of another. No nuclear civilian power facility has ever been in a war zone before. Our other story, who killed Daria Dugina? It was some sort of inside job. Former CIA covert operative Robert Bayer thinks it was the FSB. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Sometimes it's almost impossible these days to promote a story ahead of time, a week ahead of time, because news changes so quickly. We've got two big stories that are developing this week. You've been hearing most likely about the situation around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine. And that's because there's been shelling around the plant, raising the possibility that there could be a malfunction and a nuclear meltdown. So we're going to talk first about the situation around the plant. And we're going to do that with Joe Cerencioni. He's a national security expert, a nuclear proliferation expert, and he's a former head of plowshares. Joe, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. We've spoken many times over the years about nuclear situations around the world. And um, this situation in Ukraine right now with the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is, it's almost mind-boggling when you take a look at it. I've got a few questions for you, but I want to ask them one by one. And the very Mm -hmm. first one I want to ask, just, just this question, step us through what happens to make this plant go into a nuclear meltdown. What, what needs to happen? in order for us to get to that point. So the the worst case scenario for what could happen here, and there are many things that could happen. The worst case is that one of the two operating reactors melts down. And that could happen primarily through a failure of the energy, the electricity that's going into the facility or the cooling system that cools the reactor rods as they're in there. If that should happen, if the power going in should be cut off, then in a matter of hours, those fuel rods would start to heat up. And within about four or five hours, they would become so hot that they would melt the structures that are actually holding them. They would become a molten radioactive core that would burn through the reactor uh, containment vessel, drop under the floor of the reactor, and probably burn through that concrete uh, that, that, that's shielding the reactor at this point. They call this the China syndrome, because theoretically that molten 
uh, radioactive uh, metal could burn all the way down to China. It probably obviously wouldn't get there, but it would then enter the ground and the contamination would start to spread um, in, into the area and into hundreds of square kilometers around the plant. An even worse case scenario could be that during this meltdown, there's actually an explosion that blows the roof off and you have a radioactive plume that would spread tens of thousands of kilometers. Now, this is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, it's my understanding. And one of the things we've heard, as you mentioned, is if there is a meltdown, there could be the possibility of a radiation leak. We know that the government Mm -hmm. in Ukraine is distributing iodine pills. I think Moldova's doing the same thing. Some other countries may be doing the same thing. How does this radiation leak, airborne radiation leak, how does that process work? Sure. Unfortunately, we have experience of this from the nuclear tests we used to conduct in the atmosphere, from the tragedies of Three Mile Island, Fukushima, Chernobyl, of course, in in Ukraine itself. And during the fission process, during the process where the fuel rods are heated up and the, the, the atoms are split in a controlled nuclear chain reaction, in that process, it's not just heat that's produced, but it's also radioactive byproducts, uh, americium, cesium, cobalt, strontium, radioactive thi- uh, iodine. And all these are highly radioactive, and in a release, they would be born, be born in the, uh, in, into the atmosphere, or into the groundwater, into the soil around, and they could be ingested by human beings. If it's small amounts, what that means is that they increase your risk of getting um, cancer over the long run, over years of time. If it's in high amounts, if you're close to the plant, it could result in immediate uh, poisoning, immediate radiation, uh, even burns at that, at that point that could kill you uh, in, a, in a matter of minutes or hours. The reason they give thyroid uh, out is because this is the one of the most easily uh, ingestible radioactive isotopes, um, radioactive iodine. It is absorbed into the body through the thyroid gland. So by giving out potassium iodine uh, tablets, they will saturate the thyroid and help people um, uh, avoid any ingestion of the radioactive thyroid that could give them cancer. So the process of this... Uh Radiation getting into the groundwater is one thing. Getting out into the, uh, the 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 environment through the air is another thing. How does the wind work here? Because we keep hearing that, you know, this could spread via the wind uh, across yes. Europe. How would how does that work? Sure, the the radioactivity, the plume is like smoke. It'll be carried according to which way the wind is blowing. Uh, it, it could be localized. If there's if it's not a very windy day, then most of that radiation would be right around the site of the incident. But as it, if there's an explosion, if it's brought into the higher atmosphere, in that case, the winds could carry it uh, uh, west into Europe itself or east into Russia. So uh, Russia is a potential, the uh, Russians are potential victims of any radiological disaster at Zaporizhia. So how long does this, if this were to take place, this kind of radioactive leak uh, through some kind of plume, et cetera, or the water system situation? First of all, let's just look at the, look at the air. How long is this a risk? Well, the, the, in, in, the 
intense radioactivity lasts days or weeks. And as you go on, all this fades and you get more low level radioactivity. Still a risk, but not as not as deadly, not as, as likely to, to cause cancer. But all this would be would take place. Um, I would say you would probably be looking at areas if they're contaminated like this, they'd be uninhabitable for months. And in some areas uh, close to the plant, you're looking at years. At Chernobyl, which is the most serious radioactive crisis we've ever had, there are still no-go zones 30 years later around Chernobyl. Yeah, I think the Red Forest was one of those places. And early in yeah. this war, we realized that some of the Russian and Belarusian troops, and I'm not sure, I'm assuming that this was ignorance that got them into that situation. Um so, but you, we could end up with something like that around this plant, maybe? Well, that's right. So in this war, the Russians took the Chernobyl plant. It was along their axis of the offensive. And the soldiers were told to dig trenches, defensive positions in the plant, in radioactive soil. So these people have not gone home and they are ill. They are ill because of that exposure from the soil. So that's the kind of thing you have. Fukushima, same thing. There were still areas around that plant facility in Japan, which are still no-go zones, they tend to be concentrated right around the facility. That's where you'd get the most radiation. But in the immediate aftermath, uh, months, a few years, wherever the plume went, that would be areas where, where certainly human beings would not want to go. So you, through your work with Carnegie and Plowshares and everything you've done throughout your career, how would you assess this situation right now compared to other things you've seen you know this seems like a very very dangerous situation how would you assess this compared uh, unprecedented um completely preventable and extremely dangerous we're hanging by a thread here unprecedented no nation has ever invaded attacked occupied the civilian nuclear power facility of another no nuclear civilian power facility has ever been in a war zone before uh, uh, dangerous. There are multiple ways that this could end in a disaster very quickly. I mean, right off the bat, just the occupation of the plant and forcing the Ukrainian technicians to work at gunpoint completely stresses out the staff. They do not have secure communications. They don't have secure power. They don't have secure spare parts. You know, operating a nuclear power plant in the best of times is tricky. Under these con conditions, you're almost guaranteed that something will go wrong. And then on top of that, the Russians move artillery and rocket units into the base, turning it into a military base and begin firing from the base and, 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 and are firing around the area. And it's some of that Russian firing around the area that has knocked out the power lines. Uh, uh, and on over Friday, for briefly, the entire plant, for the first time ever, was cut off from the external power grid. And that could lead to the kind of nuclear meltdown that we talked up at, 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 the, at the very beginning. So all of this is extremely dangerous. You can imagine five, six different ways that this could end up. And we haven't even talked about the spent fuel that is stored there, yeah. hundreds of tons of fuel rods taken out of the reactor, stored in concrete casks that could be breached by even heavy machine gun fire. That could be another source of radiation yeah. leaks. You know, speaking of which, I've heard a couple of times <clears throat> since the early part of this war that locations on this campus have 
already been hit by rockets or bullets or something like that. So yes, see, just today. You, just today, there was a, 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 one of the facilities was hit by a mortar shell. Yeah, so it seems to me, uh, Joe, that you can't keep connecting and disconnecting these reactors to the power source, which, of you know, cooling has to be constant. Is that right? You can't keep connecting and disconnecting. And when you do that, that may lead to this uh, meltdown that you're talking about, right? Absolutely. President Zelensky said that, the you know, we went off the grid for several hours. Fortunately, the backup diesel generators went in and fortunately all the machinery was working. And fortunately, there were enough skilled personnel there to, to handle this. But that's not a guarantee. Uh, you know, part of the... the the results of the occupation means that not only are the Ukrainian operators under stress, they're understaffed. So are these things getting the routine maintenance? Will the diesel generators work again next time that it's needed? Will everybody do everything exactly right the way you have to do at a nuclear power plant? All kinds of things can go wrong, uh, particularly during an, um, uh, an interruption of the energy supply. Last thing, um, your message as a, a noted expert and well-known around the world, what is your advice to all parties involved here? An immediate ceasefire. Don't risk a nuclear catastrophe. Have an immediate ceasefire. Allow the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, to come in, survey these conditions at the plant, restore basic safety protocols, and then have a withdrawal of Russian forces. They can still control the plant, but they don't have to be in the plant. You don't, you don't have to just, Russia can still try to prosecute its war aims without risking this kind of nuclear catastrophe. I said this was unprecedented and it was completely preventable. That's the prevention part. You could fix this tomorrow if Russia would declare a ceasefire and withdraw its military units from the nuclear power plant. Joe Serencioni, national security expert with deep experience on nuclear nonproliferation. Next, we pivot to Robert Bayer to talk about who killed Daria Dugina, the daughter of a prominent Russian elite who was said to be Vladimir Putin's, quote, brain. So the question is, who did it? Robert Bayer doesn't think that it was Ukraine. He thinks it was an inside job. Robert, thank you for taking time to talk with us. Um, this is part three of our look at who really killed Daria Dugina. And you have some thoughts about that. Would you start off first by telling us what your thoughts are about what happened to her? Well, first of all, it was some sort of inside job. And, and what I mean by that is the bomb went off on a road, not around any other cars. And so I suspect, and, and this is speculation, come on, we don't, we don't know about Russia, that I suspect that it was remote controlled. Um, and it was apparently put under her seat. They could have taken the bomb and blown her up in the parking lot, like with a pressure device. I mean, by the way, I went to CIA bomb school, so have a fundamental uh, idea how you do these things. They could have blown it up in the parking lot, but they would have killed other people. Uh, someone could have been passing. So what I suspect is that they had good surveillance on Daria. Um, they knew her route. They knew she'd be there. She knew 
someone got in the car, it was either her or father, anyhow, was a valid target. And they killed her. And it was a message. It was an internal message. Only the Russians inside the Kremlin can understand it to Putin. Um, you know, did Putin kill her? No, this is just not reasonable because you just look at the press after it, it was announced that she'd been murdered. It was all over the place. They weren't prepared for this. You know, the state outlets and the rest of it just doesn't make sense. And it doesn't make sense that Putin would set off an explosion in a high-end suburb. Um, <clears throat> just keep in mind, this is speculation. We're talking about Russia, yeah. and we're never going to get the truth out of the FSB or the Kremlin. Never. Okay. Even if it served their interest to give us the truth, we're not going to get it. Okay, so we can get into the, the inner workings of the Kremlin a little bit more in just a moment, but um, you have worked as a CIA operative in the past, and you've written as well about bombs and cars, etc. Um, and you have a, f a very good knowledge of this, the technical process here. So just taking a look at what took place and how it, how it took place, is this something that could have been thrown together, or was this something that took a while to piece together? It took a while, definitely, JJJ. It wasn't ad hoc. I've actually done a film for British television called Car Bomb. And we picked through every car bombing going back to 1920. And anybody that can hit, kill somebody very precisely in a moving car has got to know what they're doing. You know, you can say, maybe they got lucky, maybe they did, but I doubt it. So they 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 probably used... <clears throat> excuse me they probably used a remote control device that means that they either had a gps locator they had a cell phone in there um and they had some sort of encrypted signal because when you're making one of these bombs you don't want a random signal to set it off especially as you're putting the bomb in the car and and arming it so they probably went through all the safety measures and in an assassination, it's not so much killing the person, it's sending the message to a particular target, which in this case, I speculate, it's telling Putin, we can get to anybody in Russia we like, um, so beware. All right, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, but um, I'm still talking about this process. One of the things that I heard was that um, there was no surveillance. Uh, of this particular place um, where the car, you know, essentially blew up. But with somebody as high profile, I suppose, as she and her father going to this festival, and just the festival in general, and considering, you know, the climate in Russia, in Moscow, and this war going on, I mean, typically there there is surveillance going on, right? Well, that's one of the things. I mean... The, the the people who murdered her, I would imagine wherever they placed the bomb, whether it was in an apartment building or in the parking lot of this festival, knew that there was no CCTV coverage because the last thing they wanted to be is identified. So I would imagine they did a lot of pre-casing for this, that they, they could wherever their watchers were and the guy, the technician who put the bomb in knew that he wouldn't be photographed. Um, you know, that's why I say it's so sophisticated. I mean, uh, look, look, 
JJ, I used to make bombs and the rest of it in training, but I'd never touch anything like this. And especially in Moscow, yeah. um, just don't, don't have the knowledge, don't have the capabilities and don't have the people on the ground. Were these likely military grade explosives? I think almost certainly it was military grade explosives because to actually kill somebody, you cannot have, let's say, a small ammonium nitrate bomb or anything that pushes. You need something, what they call the French word is brisance, that really cracks so that shrapnel came up through the seat. Again, this is speculation, but if you really want to get it right, electric detonator, military explosives, something equivalent of C4. And these are tools that not your ordinary person can get a hold of, I suppose, and certainly not somebody coming supposedly from Mariupol <laughs> into Russia. There's no way anybody would take a risk of, of driving. I mean, you know, you could always bribe soldiers, but you're just adding to the risk of getting caught. Um, and once your networks are caught, you can't hit again. So... I've listened to a lot of speculation in Moscow. And if I could just jump forward and it, it, it almost sounds like um, an insider in the FSB with technical capabilities. And then of course, motivation, but motivation is always the worst thing to judge an assassination, but the motivation might be to send Putin a message saying, Hey, you're listening to these fascists like Dugan and the rest of them. They're crazy, and we're tired of this war. That's the best explanation I've heard from Russians. As one Russian told me in Moscow, the long knives are out. In other words, there's going to be more of these hits. Yeah, a couple of people mentioned that to me months ago, and I think you were one of those people. You know, this whole thing about why is the really the most complicated part of this process. I mean, putting a bomb together like this, clearly, and an assassination can't be simple. And it was complicated, as you've explained. But just looking at the many explanations or the many speculative approaches to what took place here, you're, I mean, one of the things was, okay, there was some group called the National Republican Army that did it. Then there is, of course, what Russia says, Ukraine did it, which is just, it just doesn't seem on the face of it possible. But then there's what you're saying is, yeah, the FSB did it. It was an inside job, but it wasn't an inside job um, to frame Ukraine. It was a message to Putin. That is the most complicated part of this. And and so why would they, why would the FSB need to do that? Well, it's not the FSB itself as an organization. It's somebody in the FSB because there's a lot of factions inside the FSB, as like there are any intelligence service. And then you have people that knew this war was wrong, um, maybe even had advised Putin or maybe the advice didn't get to him that don't do it. Um, and, and you've got a lot of smart people in Russian intelligence that knows this stalemate if it goes on for years, it's going to destroy Russia. And in a very Russian way, they sent a message to the hardliners. Um, and, and like I said, it's not the, the top of the FSB. But again, I, I emphasize this is speculation. You'll notice, JJ, nobody knows what was going on. The White House has come out and say, we don't have a clue. Um, I've seen no commentators, experts on Russia come up with a reasonable, well-informed explanation 
which again throws us back on speculation. So one thing you said earlier is that there might be more of this. And I'm thinking what you're getting at is more of the elites in Russia, more people that may be, if not directly related to Putin's inner circle or the Kremlin, but certainly indirectly. In, indirectly, there may be more of these targeted at them, or who exactly? Well, that's what Russians have told me, JJ, that there's going to be more, um, that it's just the first. Uh, we're not saying there's, I'm not saying there's going to be a coup d'etat against Putin, but it's going to, there's going to be resistance in the ranks. Uh, and and you can bet that this guy, Putin, is, is, is paranoid at this because he understands how complicated this was. And the fact that it was basically uh, in Moscow, and that that he himself is vulnerable. I mean, if these people are as good as I speculate they are, as you you could take like what's called a belly charge, and then use a lot of explosives under the road. I mean, this this is worked in Spain where you can take a convoy and just blow it into the air. They, they killed the prime minister there uh, many years ago, but it's all very doable. And it's the kind of thing that that Putin has to worry about. He just can't drive around Moscow as he wants to. Put into words, Robert, the message to Putin that you think or whoever uh, the recipient of this message uh, is. Put into words what you think the message is. I think the message was to Putin, be careful, reconsider Ukraine. If you keep failing, you're next. And in terms of failing, does this mean performing poorly in Ukraine or being in Ukraine, period? Well, it's one thing if he loses Crimea, we don't know that he is, but should he use or big parts of the Donbass and the Russian army just, you know, is completely obliterated in Ukraine. Um that's what they're basically telling is, is find a way out of this. Um, I just can't imagine another message because my alternative is looking at Daria as a valid target, a Ukrainian target, which makes no sense. She's not. You've got military leaders in Moscow. So I, I just sort of dismiss that the Ukrainians had anything to do with this. Yeah. And there's so many Russians that are there are, have this fascist bent of, of, you know, looking at Ukraine as, as subhumans that, you know, there's just, she's just one of thousands. So it doesn't make any sense. The Ukrainians did it. So I go back, it's an insider message. Somebody in the military or the FSB who knew what they were doing said, Volvo, as they call Putin, okay. um, watch it. V very last thing. Who else aside from him might this message be intended for? Uh, it's the crazies around Putin, like his number two, Petrushev, and people like that. They're people in the Duma that are crazy, um, and they're just there. It, it's like almost a communists, hardline communists, a telegraphing to the fascists, like Dugan. Watch it, you guys are idiots. Do not take Russia down. Okay, Robert. Thank you as always. I appreciate your time. Um, before I go, I want to ask you, is there anything you want to add to this story that I haven't asked you about that you think is important, though? I just, as I always said, this is my hobby horse, is just how little we know about the power structure in Russia, which is which I just, you know, I, I, I've got a good grasp of that. 
Um, and it, I mean, it's, there's nothing we can do about it. Getting, it's like getting inside the Gambinos, you know, deep inside. It's not easy to do. Robert Bayer, thank you for your time. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, I think the smart money at this point is not to predict what we're going to do next week and wait until next week comes. But I can assure you, it's going to be a compelling story about U.S. national security, the threats facing the U.S., where they're coming from, and what the U.S. and its allies are doing about them. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, Cobra Kai fans. Come hear what Peyton Liss has to say on Kicking It With The Coves this week. Peyton plays one of my favorite characters, Tori Nichols. Our stunt coordinators came up with a sort of training background for each character. Mm, like, that's interesting. Uh, Tori had done a little kickboxing before, so that kind of came in when I first tried to take on Miguel and why I was cocky enough to think that, you know, I could come in here and I could just make an entrance. Listen to Kicking It With The Coves now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you can sweep your leg and get the podcasts.